Hey y'all, it's Janice. Welcome to the Dirty Diversity Podcast. This is a place where we will be exploring equity, racism, and diversity. I am a DEI consultant, educator, writer, and professor who strives to center my work around the liberation of Black folks globally. More specifically, I examine and unpack how we can create structures that support the most marginalized folks in the workplace. This is a podcast where I will share my thoughts on all things diversity, equity, inclusion, racism, anti-racism, and Black liberation. My goal is to stimulate your mind and shift you to think in a way that you've never considered before. This podcast will feature my thoughts as well as the perspectives of different folks doing related work. If you want to learn more, pick up my best-selling books, Dirty Diversity and The Pink Elephant, where I explore workplace equity in more detail. Thank you for listening. Hey, y'all. Jay Nice on the mic, back with another episode of the Dirty Diversity Podcast. This is actually episode 11 of season two. And um, in today's episode, I want to explore anti-racism in academia and what it could actually look like and whether it is actually possible. The reason why I want to explore this topic is um, a few months ago, I was actually giving a workshop, um, something that I offer called awareness workshops. So I was conducting an awareness workshop for this university and um, I was exploring this topic and I figured this would be a really dope topic to talk about for the podcast because I realized I don't really talk about anti-racism in academia. I talk about it from a corporate standpoint. I work with um, mostly corporate clients and I have a few institutions and universities and colleges that I work with. But um, since I am also in academia, for those of you who um, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but I'm also a professor. I teach full time in addition to consulting. And um, so this is something this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, So before jumping into today's episode, I just want to say um, that this week uh, I am facilitating, this upcoming week, I'm uh, co-moderating a conversation on Clubhouse um, with my co-moderator, Meshach Cleary. We've uh, facilitated several conversations on Clubhouse, the app. The link to tap into the conversation is in the show notes, but we're going to be really talking about how to move from awareness to action. We're talking specifically about Clubhouse like and how you know, we listen to a lot of things on Clubhouse and Clubhouse could be paralleled with any social media. So you listen to this podcast or you listen to something on Clubhouse or you watch a YouTube video or you see something on social media on LinkedIn or on Instagram. How do you actually take the awareness about a topic or a subject. How do you take that awareness and put it into action? What does that look like in a corporate setting? So we're really gonna be focusing on like how to take what we're talking about and put it into action. Cause it's one thing to talk about it, but it's more important if, if we're actually being about it and we're not just talking the talk, but also walking the walk. So um, the link to join the conversation on Clubhouse, which is taking place 
April 27th, Tuesday uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific is in the show notes. Also, um, uh, if you want to tap into the Pink Elephant Club on Clubhouse, I host weekly conversations about all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. So the link to join or to connect with me on Clubhouse is in the show notes. Also, thank you so much for those of you who've been purchasing my my two books, The Pink Elephant and Dirty Diversity. I'm really proud. I'm like not able to speak today. I'm really proud to announce that my both of my books are available on my website. So if you want to grab a copy, uh, I have info in the show notes to grab a copy. I'm proud of both books. Um, I feel like Dirty Diversity was my first book. Um, it was a really like sort of pragmatic um, introduction to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. And The Pink Elephant is more um, is more nuanced. Um, And it's very sort of like, this is what racial equity can look like. And, you know, I have ideas for a third and a fourth book, uh, but I'm so proud of both books. But I really poured my heart into The Pink Elephant because I was writing it um, as we were getting information about the Breonna Taylor case. Um, So I felt like I put my blood, sweat and tears into that book. Um, So, again, both are available for purchase through my website and a link to purchase is in the show notes. So I think those were all the housekeeping items. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. Um, As a smaller creator um, and as someone who's bootstrapping all of this, you know, all of this stuff and doing it on my own, um, one way to tangibly support me and my work is through leaving ratings, um, leaving feedback that really helps when it comes to the visibility of the podcast. So I would love you a million times over if you did that. Um, so thank you all so much for consistently listening and tapping in to the Dirty Diversity Podcast. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. What does anti-racism look like in academia? So, you know, I think that first of all, when you are, for those of you who are listening to this who are educators, as an educator, I think it's super important to, first of all, adopt the mindset of a, that it's a collaborative effort in the workplace. So one book that I definitely encourage everyone to check out, especially for an educator, two books. The first is Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is a heavy book. It was a lot for me to understand. Um, I'm not a huge fan of books that are really wordy, use a lot of really big words, and I'm not able to follow. And Pedagogy of the Oppressed was one of those books for me. It was a lot. Um, But I actually wanted to read it after uh, listening to Teaching to Transgress, which is a, a book by Bell Hooks, in which she references Pedagogy of the Oppressed a lot. But one of the things that was talked about in both books was this banking model of education, where, you know, when I went to school, what I learned is like, as an educator, you are the authority and you are pouring education into or depositing education rather into students. And then they will take this education, go out into the world and be productive members of society. But as was pointed out in both of the aforementioned books, this sort of like mindset is not the best way to learn because I think it diminishes the value that students have to bring to the classroom. And educators and teachers aren't always in the right and aren't always knowledgeable about every single thing under the sun. 
students have a lot of value to impart on us, have a lot of value to bring to the table, have a lot of knowledge, skills, and expertise that they can share, especially, you know, for me, I teach undergraduates and graduate students, and my graduate students have so much experience in management and in business and in human resources. And I think that oftentimes as educators, we overlook that and we just say, I'm the authority figure, I know best and I know better. And that is sort of what we impart in our classrooms. And I've tried to move away from that. And in both of these books, it talks about that. But I think first we have to, um, as educators, uh, put away or throw away this banking model of education and understand that students can teach us a lot of things. I've learned a lot of things for my students. Students aren't these just like useless um, tabula rosas, like these uh, blank slates that we're pouring into. Students are coming to the classroom with a wealth of knowledge, skills, and expertise, and we have to acknowledge that and we have to um, value that. So I think the first is an understanding of this banking model of education and understanding that students have a lot of value that they can bring into the classroom. When thinking about what an anti-racist, anti-oppressive um, classroom looks like, I think it's first important to understand as an educator, you know, I consistently try to educate myself and try to understand that although I have a PhD, that doesn't mean I know everything there is to know about life and the world. And I have to also acknowledge and understand that I have learning to do. So I think every educator must adopt this belief and this mindset that even though I am, um, I am a, a quote-unquote authority figure, and I've earned more degrees than I'm in the, this position because I'm quote-unquote educated. I also have things to learn. I'm not the knower of all things. And I think a lot of folks with PhDs especially or folks who are highly educated, have a lot of accolades and achievements, have this mindset that like we're the know-all, end-all, be-all. And I think that opening yourself up to this idea that there's always more to learn and understand is important. Um, I think every educator should have an understanding of microaggressions, what they can look like, the ways that they show up in the classroom. One of my students, I had a student who is um, Hispanic, and she shared with me that um, she was in a classroom and her professor uh, was talking about immigration. And she was the only Hispanic student in the classroom, and her professor called on her uh, to answer some immigration-related question. And that was very sort of alienating. Made she, she interpreted that as a microaggression. And I think it's important for us as educators to understand that it's in, in, in American classrooms and in classrooms around the world, it's not just the, the blatant forms of racism where a teacher says the N-word or a teacher allows the saying of the N-word. It's racism and oppression show up in, in very nuanced and subtle ways. So I think every educator should have an understanding of microaggressions, should stay abreast of the ways that white supremacy permeates the, the classroom. What does that look like? Um, that can often look like white students being seen as authority figures, and it could also be the bias that educators of color experience. I have stories on stories which one day I will tell y'all. I can't really, I'm still kind of in the trenches of things, but one day 
I hope that I can write a book about it or share it with you, all the things that I've gone through as a young black woman who has a PhD, who has educated uh, mostly students that don't come from my same background. There's the, the, the microaggressions, the racial microaggressions are so plentiful. Um, you know what I'm saying? And I think that there has to be an understanding of w the ways that microaggressions manifest in classrooms in order to intervene and ensure that this is not happening in your classroom. Also, as an educator trying to create and cultivate an equitable and inclusive and anti-racist classroom, some, some really quick suggestions that I think you should think about and consider. The first is learning student names. Like, I know that it's really difficult in a classroom where you have a lot of students, um, but I think that there's something that shows that you value a person when you learn how to pronounce their name. I think that um, I, my name has uh, my name is so simple, Janice Gassam Asare, but it's always being butchered. People call me Janice so often. People call pronounce my last name Gassam. People say Usare, and it's just like learn how to say my name. Don't try to shorten it. Um, and also learning people's pronouns and not assuming pronouns. And I know that for a lot of us. This can be something where we're like, I don't know enough about this, but it's like, I try not to assume people's pronouns in my classroom unless they, um, unless they describe themselves by a particular pronoun. Um, but I, I try to just say they when I'm referring to any student. Um, I think that that's important too when you're trying to create an inclusive classroom. Um, and I am very intentional about bringing in speakers who are black indigenous people of color. I try to have a full spectrum and have my students um, hearing from experts that are not just white men, because as we know, or as you may not know, um, white men are more likely to be looked at as experts in every domain. Um, people are more likely to um, add the doctor to a white man's name than to my name. Um, I can't tell you how many times people forgot the PhD, forgot the doctor conveniently. So bringing in experts who aren't what people may think, you know, bringing in um, a black, uh, a black uh, rocket scientist, you know what I'm saying? Like bringing in people that sort of shatter the stereotype that you may have that black people don't do this or indigenous and Native American people don't do this or whatever. Bringing in a wide spectrum of speakers is important when trying to create an anti-racist and inclusive and equitable classroom. Also, look at what you're assigning for reading. Is there diversity among the readings and among the folks that are being assigned to readings? And I, I know that this can be really, really, really hard um, especially if you're in a particular subject area where there isn't, there's so much gatekeeping. You know what I'm saying? When you publish something, the editors and the publishers are mostly white. So there's a lot of gatekeeping. If you publish something that's of value, it might get rejected by a journal because the folks who are evaluating it all come from the same background and they don't see value in the topic that's being explored. So I definitely encourage you to assign readings that are from a, a wide range of writers. That It might be an excerpt from a book. And I'm preparing um, to teach a new course in uh, a few weeks. Um, and I'm really, you know, I always try to be intentional with the speakers, but I'm also um, trying to think about 
readings, additional readings. And I, usually I sign my students stuff from like Harvard Business Review um, because they have like a wealth of articles in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I also am mindful of, and I try to be very, very mindful of who is even writing these articles. Because a lot of articles on DEI are written not by people of color. So you know what I'm saying? Being really intentional about who is writing these things that I'm assigning. Um, because a lot of, you know, Toni Morrison talked about the white gaze and how a lot of writers write with white audiences in mind and sort of contort themselves in their writing to appease these white audiences. So I think it's really important to be intentional about what we're assigning for readings for our students, who we're assigning for readings. Um, is really important. Another way to create more equity and inclusion in your classroom is I do anonymous grading. So when students, when my students submit papers, I always tell them don't put your name on it. And if you're using Blackboard or any, whatever system you're using um, in your university or your institution, there should be a blind grading option. So I try to make sure that for any assignment that they're submitting, um, write, written assignment, I'm grading blindly because I recognize that I'm human. I have my own biases. As much as I'd like to think I'm not biased and I'm, I'm anti-racist and I'm whatever, we all have our blind spot. So grading blindly is to me almost like getting blind resumes because it's the understanding that you know that you have these biases. How do I create systems so that I can not lean on my biases when I'm making decisions. You know, another thing that I try to do in my classroom is calling on students versus doing like popcorn style discussions. Um, it's hard sometimes, especially in a virtual setting, but I find that sometimes certain students dominate the conversation. And um, it may be, especially in classrooms where you're the only student woman, you're the only student of color, you're the only black person, you may be less likely to talk or you may feel intimidated or some people just tend to dominate the conversation. So sometimes I like to call specifically on students to ask for their feedback um, and what they think so that I'm making sure that I'm equitable in, in who I'm allowing to speak and how often I'm allowing students to speak. And what I also do is select groups. So when students are doing group projects, I select groups versus allowing students to self-select because when they self-select, they're more likely to gravitate toward toward other students that are like them. So if I'm a black woman, I'm more likely to get into a group with other black women. And really one of the goals of my classroom is helping people of different backgrounds to get to know each other. That's why I try to be really, really intentional about group projects and I always select the groups. And I try to select students into groups um, you know, based on who I think might not know each other, who I haven't seen conversing and talking to each other. So I also think as an educator, when you think about like how or a question to ask yourself is how am I expanding my awareness, especially if you have a classroom or if you lead classrooms full of folks that are different than you? And that's something that I'm constantly asking myself because I'm not the knower of all knowledge. And even though people like sometimes describe me as an expert, I'm always quick to be like, I'm not an expert in everything. Um, I'm only an expert in my experiences and what I've studied 
and what I've researched and there's always more I could be learning so like I ask you as an educator what are you watching how are you educating yourself on groups outside of your own be very very mindful of like watching films that uh, depict white saviorism and I've talked all about white saviorism um, in a previous episode um, so I definitely encourage you to check out last uh, the last season of the podcast where I, I had one specific episode on white saviorism. I'll actually link to that episode in the show notes for you to check out. But uh, make sure you're not watching. And a lot of the educational films, probably films that we loved, um, are like white saviorism in its most purest form. Like I'll give you an example. I loved, growing up, I loved the movie Dangerous Minds. I really liked Michelle Pfeiffer as an actress, um, and I, re- I just love, love the film. You know, I think my sister bought me the DVD um, of Dangerous Minds, and um, but it's a classic white savior narrative where Michelle Pfeiffer comes in from wherever she was from. She comes to this inner city school in Los Angeles that's mostly black and Hispanic students. Um, she comes in and saves the students. And it's a nice story. It leaves you feeling good, like a lot of white savior narratives do. Um, but it's reinforcing this storyline or this, um, per- it's reinforcing and perpetuating negative stereotypes about people of color, black and brown folks being uneducated, being lazy, being um, just whatever negative stereotypes you can think of. So, As an educator, it's your responsibility to make sure that you are watching, you are constantly on a quest to educate yourself about groups outside of your own. And again, I think that this is something really difficult for highly educated folks, Um, you know, especially in academia, we're supposed to be super progressive. But what I find is that that's not always the case. A lot of folks in academia, especially those who've gotten their PhDs, who've been doing teaching for a number of years, we're kind of, a lot of us are stuck in our ways and we think we're good, we don't need to evolve and change and learn and grow, we just need to teach people how to do those things. And I'm here to tell you, creating an anti-racist and anti-oppressive classroom requires you also to constantly be on a quest for unlearning and relearning um, about different groups of people. So. That concludes today's episode on anti-racism and anti-oppression in the classroom and what that particularly looks like in the ivory tower in higher education and academia. I would love to hear your thoughts on if you have any other ways that you try to create an anti-racist and anti-oppressive, diverse, equitable, and inclusive classroom for your students. Um, And at some point, I'll probably write an article about this because I realize I've literally never written an article about this. And at this point, I need to count how many articles I've, I've done, but I, at this point I may have hit 250 articles and I've literally never written an article about anti-racism and inclusion in academia. I did an interview with Erica Hart, who is a, a sex educator and influencer. Um, she has a really large following on social media, but we talked about her recent um, exit from Columbia University. She was essentially like pushed out of the university um, for a number of different reasons. And I'll link to that um, interview in the show notes if you want to check it out. But that's as close to talking about racism in academia and oppression in academia I've gotten. I don't know what's taken me so long, but at some point, probably in the near future, I'm going to sit and write an article that sort of outlines my thoughts in more detail. But 
Um, With that, I'm going to conclude today's episode. Thank you all so much for listening to episode 11, season two of the Dirty Diversity podcast. Um, Again, if you have any other suggestions, connect with me on LinkedIn, connect with me on Instagram. I live on those platforms most Um, But I will check y'all out in the next episode. Again, thank y'all so much for listening. Be sure to tap into our clubhouse this Tuesday. um, And uh, that is where I'll leave off today's episode.